right, welcome to Sunday School. We are currently going through the book of Haggai. We are now in chapter 2, if you would like to begin the long process of finding that tiny book. And we are nearing the end of it. In fact, I suspect we'll finish it today. And when you find Haggai chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 10 through the end of the chapter. The Bible says in Haggai chapter 2 and in verse 10, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hand, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, is yet in the, uh, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth from this day will I bless you. And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Whew, that was a mouthful. So last time we considered God's requirement for holiness and cleanliness. Remember that the question which was being asked was according to God's law. God wasn't concerned with what their opinion was, but God wanted to know, do you understand what my word says? Um, he was not interested in how the government might define holiness. He was not concerned with their religious preference. And we certain, certainly, or he certainly was not concerned with what those outside of Israel thought about what was holy and clean. But there are churches who operate based upon man's opinion. There's one well-known church in California that if I said the name, you would probably know. And the pastor decided to take a poll of the community to find out what they wanted in a church. Structured the church that way, and of course the church is huge. But we're not to be concerned with what the lost world thinks church should be like, right? I mean, we're concerned for the lost, 
but we don't conform the church to the world. We don't allow culture to steer the church. There are so-called churches who move in step with the government. If the government defines, well, let me put it this way, because there's churches that actually do this. If the government endorses abortion, then that church will endorse abortion. Churches. There are uh, churches that, because the government has legislated some kind of immorality, that it is therefore okay in the church. And we're seeing that with the homosexual, uh, the homosexual movement and the transgender movement. Um, and, and in those cases, the Bible has absolutely no authority. But God isn't concerned with what we feel is right or wrong. I mean, He cares about us, but He is holy, and He's not going to change His definition of holy, His definition of cleanliness. And so, He's concerned that we know His Word and that we follow what His Word says. And so, the questions were asked, can something holy remain holy if it touches anything unholy? Will something unclean make what it touches unclean. And, and the priest answered, we're, we're just recapping still, the, the priest answered the questions correctly, and that is you cannot remain holy by touching unholy things. Isn't that right? As a holy, born-again child of God, you cannot remain holy and dabble with sin. You can't go and join yourself to unholiness and remain holy. We, we cannot, as a clean vessel, touch something that is unclean and remain clean. They answer correctly. And that's where I want to pick up where we left off last time. And that is the application of those questions asked by Haggai to Israel. Look at verse 14 again. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. <clears throat> it's interesting to note, and I hope I'm not looking too much into it, but God right there does not call them His people. There is a separation that has taken place. There is an uncleanness. There is an unholiness. And, and, and God doesn't really own them at that point uh, by this verbiage, although they were still God's people. God calls the entire nation unholy. <laughs> the entire nation is unclean. And like we may look at tonight, when Achan took of the accursed thing, God said all of Israel was guilty. And so here is... This, this issue with cleanliness and uncleanliness, and, and, and we'll see as we go. Uh, actually, we might be there now. Let me see. Yeah. And so God is considering their offerings unclean and unholy, but they're making offerings. Isn't that strange? And as God looks upon the nation, He calls the nation unclean. He calls them unholy, and I can't help but think how God looks down upon America today. We are not a holy nation. We're not clean. Thank God for His people. 
And so they're, they're offering, and, and you may recall, when they came out of Babylonian captivity, when Cyrus released them and they got back to the land, there in Jerusalem they built an altar. You may remember we read all that way earlier in this study. And when they built that altar, they began to offer offerings upon it. But it was right after that, you'll recall, that the pressure came and they ceased building the temple. The foundation had been laid, but they stopped building. And they apparently were still offering offerings upon that altar. That's what it kind of sounds like here. God is not happy with their offerings that were being made. Um, the, the temple was being neglected. And I want to tell you this. God isn't happy with our offerings when we leave everything else undone. See, they were making the offerings, but everything else was left undone. And, and that does not please God. They had become so focused on themselves that what they were doing is they were beautifying their own houses, and they were leaving the house of God out of the picture. And so God is not happy with what's going on here. They were making offerings, but they weren't concerned in the manner in which the offerings were being made because they weren't even concerned about the rest of the house of God. They didn't mind, listen to this now, they didn't mind bringing in an offering to the house of God so long as the house of God did not interrupt their lives. I'm okay doing this exercise of religion, but don't, don't press me. Don't interrupt my life. And I see here as an application that God is not pleased with half-hearted Christianity. People can come in here and they can make their offering, but they aren't really concerned about the rest of the work of God. People like the feeling of thinking that they are pleasing God by showing up. That's what we see in a lot of other churches Right? We see it here too. People like the idea of showing up thinking that they're pleasing God, but they don't like the idea of the church invading their everyday life. <clears throat> Come in, sit down, but don't ask me to do any more than that. To be honest with you, I was discouraged with our attendance for our own 40th anniversary day celebration. We ended up with good attendance because of the friends of Pastor Holder who came in from other churches. And we ended up having good attendance, but it was really those who carried it. Wednesday and Sunday was kind of average. Uh, we might have been a little above average Sunday anniversary, anniversary Sunday. Um, but for our church folks, it was about average. But what about Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? The weather was great. Highs were in the 50s, the roads were good, no snow, it was just a blessing. But people don't like their lives interrupted. I'll bring in an offering, but leave the rest of this alone. Now, before you take that the wrong way, I'm not talking about those who could not get off from work. I understand all those things, but I'm talking about those who just prefer not to be inconvenienced. People say, well, preacher, you know, the early church only assembled once a week. That's not true. Um, you know what they did? They met every day. So do you want to go back to the early church way or not? 
The Bible says in Acts 2, 46 and 47, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Um, So I don't know that you want to go back to that model, that way of assembling, but I don't think it's too much to ask for one week of the year to show up for five days in a row. I ask the same thing for family camp. We show up at family camp Thursday afternoon through Saturday afternoon, and of course we have our regularly scheduled Sunday services there. And I always encourage people, take the time off. In fact, I started hammering that last Sunday night with family camp. Take time off. Be there. It's worth your investment. And I, I want you to understand my heart because our church is really the exception in this day and age. We see a return rate Sunday night and Wednesday night somewhere around 65 to 75% return. And this is the main reason why a lot of churches are going to small groups on Sunday night, canceling Wednesday night. It's because nobody comes back. We're not going to do that, um, even if it's just me here. But it's, we, we have a good group of people is what I'm saying. I, I, so don't misunderstand me. But we can do better. And uh, I just want people to be blessed. That's why we have the special meetings. It's uh, so you can grow. So you can hear preaching and, and, and listen, the best life you can live will be planted in a good church. You're not going to excel spiritually if you forsake our assembling together. And so here's the house of Judah. They're making offerings, but they're half-hearted about it because the temple is in ruins. Their neglect of the temple made their offerings unclean and unholy in God's sight. They went through the motions, which made it seem like they cared about holiness and cared about the things of God, but they didn't care enough to take care of the house of God. And that's what God had an issue with, and some people are no different today. I'll go through the motions, but don't ask me to do any kind of service within the church. Are you half-hearted in your Christianity? Would God look at your efforts today and deem it unclean or unholy? Because all you're really doing is you're bringing in an offering and you're going your own way. God wants all of you, amen? He wants all of you. He wants all of your heart. Uh, He wants you to love Him with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. God wants you to go ahead and just sell out. Just sell out. Selling out for God doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up a missionary. It doesn't necessarily mean God's going to call you to pastor. Or whatever else people are concerned about. If I sell out, God's going to do blank. Uh, that's not necessarily true, but if it happens, praise God. Yeah, praise God. Um, but the fact is, we need some godly businessmen. We need some men and women who are in the secular world, but are sold out for God. You don't have to be in quote-unquote full-time service in order to be sold out for God. And so God wants these people. We, we need some good men and women who sit in the pew, 
but are sold out for God because they're going out into the secular world and they're telling people about Christ. And they're supporting the church. You know, you can be a businessman and still teach a Sunday school class. I did it almost my entire career. Active duty, shift working, still teaching, still preaching, um, teaching classes and all that. You can do it. God wants all of you. And so all of that is what God wants from us. He's okay if you're not up here as a pastor or on the field as a missionary or whatever, so long as you're sold out for Him. You can help with a class. You don't have to necessarily even teach a class. Sometimes we just need helpers in these classes, especially with the van ministry growing and uh, poor Cindy DeGarmo. Go down there sometime and look at her class. And I can't remember one time she had like 18 kids in that little bitty room. And uh, <laughs> wouldn't mind to have a little camera watching. But, you know, honestly, if that trend continues, it's at the point where she's going to need a helper just safety-wise. And Brother DeGarmo's up here teaching, so just something to keep in mind. We could use helpers. Um, we could help saturate the city with door hangers. You can work at the press. You can help on a bus route. Amen. These are all things that are always in need of help, it seems like. And by the way, we're probably going to need to purchase a third van, and so we'll need some workers for that. But you don't understand, that would take me away from my personal time. Well, first of all, if you're a believer in Christ, then that personal time is no longer your time because you belong to God and you've been bought with a price and now that time belongs to God. But secondly, if you want to look at it as your personal time, then yes, it will take away from your personal time. Amen. I, and so it's just one of those things where it's all on how we look at it. But I would ask you this. How much time do you spend in a week with eternity in mind? How much time do you spend witnessing to a coworker, uh, helping somebody out, doing something within the church? Um, how much time do you, do you spend? Are you sharing the gospel? Do you invest yourselves into others and their walk with God? How much time are you investing in others? Are you half-hearted? Now notice verses 15 through 19. And now I pray you, consider from this day upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for, to draw out fifty uh, vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all labors of your hands, and all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, is yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree? Hath not brought forth from this day will I bless you. Now, we've already seen in chapter 1 where Haggai wanted them to consider their ways. You remember that? He, he wanted them to consider their ways. That was found in chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. And in fact, we're going to read that in just a minute. Um, those two verses, they're kind of like bookends. Consider your ways, consider your ways. But what does Haggai say in between those two statements? Look at chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. 
Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Now, just for context here, let's read through verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, or verse 8, Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the all, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor in thine hands. So we read over there in chapter 1, Haggai says, consider your ways. You're sowing a lot, but you're not bringing in much. And he says, consider and, and God goes on to describe that there was drought and all this that was coming as a result of their disobedience. And, and, and back here in chapter 2, you can go back there now, but there are two statements telling them to consider from this day and upward. Uh, consider something. They're reminded again that they had been experiencing a lack of harvest. And it's not like they could just go to Wally World and buy some groceries. Uh, you either had a harvest or you didn't eat. Amen? It's kind of a big deal. It's like if all the truckers went on strike, we'd be in trouble. And so uh, here they are. God's telling them to consider some things, that they're having a lack of harvest, and, and what they thought they would bring in, it never materialized. The, the Bible says what you thought was going to bring in 20 measures only brought in 10. And, and that which you thought at the press fat would make 50 vessels, it only made 20. And, and the reason for this was because God was smiting their crop with blasting, mildew, and hail. The labor of their hands in the field wasn't producing what they thought it would. But would you notice again that last phrase in verse 17? Yet ye turn not to me saith the Lord. God tells them the reason for their lack of harvest was He was trying to get them to turn back to Him. And this is a, a principle that everyone in here needs to make sure you understand. And, and we could park it right here. Man, we could just do some preaching. You've heard me say it many times, but God is always drawing us to Himself. He, he always moves with purpose. And, and the end goal of everything God does is for His glory, for our good. And, and He wants to bring us into a closer relationship. And God uses many different ways to draw us closer. Many different ways to try and get our attention. One of those ways is through hard times. And, and God especially brings hard times when we're in rebellion. If we have rebelled. And what's hard for you, what's hard for a pastor, what's hard for deacons 
is when do we give to somebody? When do we not? That's hard to do because we are sympathetic. There are people within the fold. There are people who come in off the street seeking for financial help. And, and what's hard to know is, are you enabling them? Are you, is, is God trying to bring some kind of an attention getter into their life, and yet we're interrupting that? It's difficult. I know our government is guilty of this through the myriad of social programs available. Some of those are good. Uh, some of them not so good. There are parents who are guilty of this by allowing their rebellious adult child to live in sin in their home. And their home just becomes the rebellious person's base of operations for their sinfulness. Amen. And, and, and we all can be guilty of this. Friends do the same thing. And, and like I said, it's difficult because we are sympathetic. We want to be helpful. And we often think, man, I, if, I, if, I, if I could just influence this person for good, maybe it'd be a help to them. But be careful you're not being an enabler. Many times you can't tell until it begins to happen repeatedly. Isn't that right? There was a man who came in here once, and he needed some money. And, and this happens a lot, but... Um, a lot of things really happen behind the scenes that nobody ever hears about. This man came in, he needed money, and, and Larry Brock and I were talking, and Larry emptied his wallet, helped this guy out. We never used church funds with this guy for some reason. I don't really know why. We just never were felt led to. And uh, Larry very graciously opened his wallet and gave him some money. I may have helped out with that, brother, just for, you know, optics sake. People, I want people to think I'm a giver. And um, <laughs> anyway... Second time he came in, first time that he was here, I said, uh, I said, yeah, we'll, we'll help you out. Our church starts in about 15 minutes. Love for you to stick around. Made sure he had a gospel track and all these things. And Oh, yeah, 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 I'll be back, I'll be back. Never came back. Came in a second time. I really need some money. And uh, I didn't have much time to speak with him that time. I can't remember why. And Larry and Russ opened their wallets and helped him again. And he never came back. He came in a third time. And I reminded him, you never came back the other times you said you would. And so I, I pulled him aside. And I let him know how I felt about it. Um. I said, look, we, we've given to you three times or two times already. We're going to give to you a third time. We're, we're going we're gonna to help you out again. But these men have helped you out of the goodness of their hearts. They have taken money from their own wallets that could have went to their own families to help you out. And each time that you came in here, you said, I'll be back. And you've never come back. I said, don't expect any more money until you get your heart right. Because there comes a point when we enable them. And, and God is trying to get their attention to shake them up and get their heart right. And I wasn't ugly about things. I'm a pretty nice guy. And guess what? He's never been back. And that's sad. I have no problem helping people out. We do it all the time. Um, we have some of the most giving deacons you will ever meet. 
and I go to them, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. I mean, that's usually my approach. I don't want to do this. Uh, well, you know, we ought, to, we ought to do it. We ought to help them out. And, uh, man, they're just giving. And, and so, um, I, I, I'm, you know, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety, and I'll usually go in the direction of, of, our, of their recommendation most times. But um, anyway, we, we give a lot. We, we do this, and, and we'll continue to do it. We've helped a lot of people out. Um, and so, um, anyway, I don't want to be an enabler of what God is trying to take a hard situation to teach them a spiritual lesson. And God here says, look, I have interrupted your harvest for these years that you've neglected the temple so that you would turn back to me. I, I gave you a hard situation. You are not experiencing the increase that you wanted to experience. And it's all because I'm trying to get you to draw closer to me. And, and so God uses those times, and we just have to be sensitive to that. We have to be discerning. Um, but what's amazing to me is, because I could give you account after account of people who have either called, come in, I can give you one account where the lady was ticked off that we gave her food. Remember that? And, uh, boy, I'm just in a hard time, and, uh, you know, life isn't going well. And I said, boy, we've got about, how many pounds of chicken was it? I said, Adrian, go downstairs and get the chicken. Actually, she might have recommended it. And uh, I love it when people get mad at your generosity. Adrian comes over the chicken, forget it, I don't want it. We're just storming out the door. And so I could give you story after story, but what, what's amazing to me is that people will come to the church house, they'll, they'll come to God's people for assistance, but they'll never turn to the God of the people. Does that make sense? And it's not that we're not giving them the gospel. It's not that we're not offering spiritual help. And it's, it's kind of puzzling. Uh, how is it that they can come to God's people, they can come to God's house, but never see the connection to God? If they expect that God's people will have mercy and that God's people should help, then why can't they see that it is God who enables them to have mercy and to help? Right? Who... who is it that makes us merciful? It's God. Who is it that blesses us to be able to help others? It's God. And so there's a connection there that ought to be made. Why not just go to the source at some point? Why not just go to the spigot? Well, anyway, God has lessened Judah's increase. He's trying to get their attention. And I would tell you that if you feel like you're in that position, you need to do some spiritual inventory this morning. You've got to see if there's an area of your life that you need to get right with God. Now, what's really sad is when a believer makes a mess of their life by their half-hearted Christianity, God brings difficulty to their life to shake them up, and then they blame God for that situation, but they will refuse to get right with God. That makes no sense to me. They understand it's the hand of God. I'm not saying that part's wrong. They understand that God has brought it into their life, but they somehow see it as God being unjust. When really they're only reaping the consequences of not honoring God with their life in the first place. They're half right, they're half wrong. No, it's not God's fault, but yes, it is God who's bringing that trial. But it's God's way of trying to draw you to Himself. And maybe you're in a difficult situation today. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. God just wants you to walk closer to Him. He wants all of you. And He says, consider your ways. 
But I want you to get what's being said in our text. The people here, they're, they're getting back to work as we've covered in chapter 1 and parts of chapter 2. They're, they're getting back to work. They're rebuilding the temple. They're getting stirred up. And Haggai now tells them, consider from this day going forward. Consider from this day and upward. And he says, I want you to consider this because God is going to bless you now. And, and, and he says that at the end of verse 19. He, he makes it real clear. From this day will I bless you. All of those difficulties which God was bringing in, into their lives to get them to turn their focus back upon God, he now is going to turn all of that to blessing. Why? Because they're getting back to doing what they should have been doing all along. They're getting back to what they should have been doing in the first place. And, and Haggai says, you mark it down. You're going to be blessed now. Amen. They were no longer going to so much and only bring in little. They were no longer going to uh, go hungry. They were no longer going to be thirsty. They were no longer going to have clothes that wouldn't keep them warm. They were no longer going to bring money in and put it into a bag with holes. God was going to bless. And I want to tell you this morning that God will bless our labors for Him. And so certain is this that Haggai says, you save the date. You mark it down. This is certain. I want you to see what God is going to do. God's not going to continue with the blasting and the mildew and the hail. And He's not going to hold back the rain anymore from the clouds. But He's going to bless the land. Haggai says, you mark it down from the 24th day of the ninth month. How about that? Years earlier, they had laid the foundation of the temple, but clearly after all that neglect, they had to ac accomplish some foundational work again, which we kind of saw there in verse 18. But um, Haggai says, look, it's going to happen. God's going to bless you now that the house is being rebuilt. Now that you are honoring God once again, now that you are no longer going through half-hearted motions, now that you are no longer just merely checking a box, I'm going to bless you again. And I know I have to be careful in how this is presented in the day and age in which we live with the prosperity gospel that's running around out there, the bunch of nonsense that we hear some of the TV evangelists preaching. But it's right here for us. If we bless God, God blesses us. And, and that was the instruction God gave Israel all the way back there in Deuteronomy 28. He said, if you bless me, I'll bless you. If you um, don't bless me, I'll curse you. Well, it's real simple. And it's still in the Bible. It's still true. We just got to make sure we present it the right way. Um, and, and so, is your life a mess? It could be you're not honoring God. Haggai is calling them to observe these principles. And, and what, I like, what I love about this is that it's quantifiable. It's observable. You can see it. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the, their problem was they weren't honoring God and now they're being blessed because they're honoring God. God is going to show beyond any reasonable doubt here that what's going on is Him blessing them once again for getting back to work. And so now that they're no longer going through their half-hearted motions, God says, I'll bless. And then there was going to be proof. They could hold it in their hands. They would have a harvest. They would have increase again. They would, uh, they would reap the labors of their hands as they had expected. 
Those who love God and honor God are blessed greatly. But those who only have half-hearted Christianity never seem to get things together. They're in for a while, they're out for a while. They're up, they're down. Amen? It's observable. But I want to tell you, the blessings aren't always monetary. It, it's, it's that God gives us provision. God gives us a house. He gives us clothes. He gives us food. But more importantly than all that is those who will honor God, God gives them peace through the storms. Isn't that right, Bob? Just lost his wife of 36 years recently. God gives peace through the storm. You see, when we honor God with our lives, the, the provision that God gives us that, that we can see and we can, we can understand, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have these large bank accounts. But you'll find that people have peace, that you'll find people saying, His grace is always sufficient. You'll find people saying, He's my comfort. And sometimes when needed, it's monetary. I can testify to that over the last nearly four years of ministry. And uh, God's met every need, sometimes monetarily. And, and I just thank God for how He provides for us. But, and, and really, that's the bottom line. To put all this very simply, God provides our needs when we honor Him. I didn't say He gives you all your wants. But He's given me a lot of wants along the way too. But He provides our needs. But those who are half in, those who never get all in, God will make uncomfortable circumstances in their life to get their attention, to get them back to doing what they should have been doing all along. Amen? Let's try to close this book out because I don't want to give you half a lesson next week in this book and then half a lesson from another book. Those last verses there, verses 20 through 23, it's uh, the second prophecy that's found in this book. And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month. That's the same day as this other conversation was taking place. So later that day, apparently, God spoke to Haggai again. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of kingdoms of the heathen. Of, excuse me. And I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the, of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one. By the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, this complements our lesson that I gave. So I'm kind of giving you two sermons here. We just had the first one. Here's the second one. And this kind of complements the verses we covered uh, 4 through 9 in this chapter about the Lord's temple. And at the time, I debated whether to include this in that. But then I decided to see how everything would time out. And um, like I said, I don't want to kind of split this up. So let's try to close out this book. The difference in, in these two prophecies, even though there's some similar language, is the timing. I believe the first prophecy began with Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ultimately His ascension, and, and how we become lively stones in Christ. And when we are born again, God puts us into a spiritual temple. We're called lively stones. We're being built up in habitation of God. And what's interesting about that temple 
is God is our high priest. Jesus Christ, while he was upon this earth, he functioned as a prophet. And he's going to be a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, prophet, priest, and king. And so he, he operated as a prophet. And, and now in glory, uh, right now at the right hand of the Father, he functions as our high priest. And he's going to need to function as a king at some point. We understand Jesus is our king, but stay with me here. Because this prophecy closes out, that closes out this book is talking about Jesus' second coming. Verse 21 says, the heavens and the earth will shake. The Bible is clear that that happens when the Lord returns. We, we saw that language in the first prophecy as well, but I still think there's a timing difference. Verse 22 describes what will happen when Christ returns. He will overthrow the kingdoms, and the kingdoms of this world will become His. In Revelation chapter 11, and in verse 15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And so that's going to happen. We also know that, and I'm going to skip reading it, but it's Revelation 19, 11 through 21. But we also know when Jesus comes again, there's going to be war. He's going to uh, break forth on a white horse. His, his mouth is as a two-edged sword. His eyes are as a flame of fire. His, his vesture's been dipped in blood. And on his thighs says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's going to ride triumphantly. He's going to smite the nations. He's going to defeat his enemies. He's going to wage war. And he always wins. Therefore, Zerubbabel there in verse 23 refers to Christ. Even though it clearly says the son of Shealtiel, but that actually fits Christ's description as well. Because when you read the genealogies in Mark 1 and Luke 3, you'll see that in that genealogy is Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. And so it still fits as a name of Christ. Um, there are two great prophecies found in Haggai. This is what I like about this as I close this out. The first one that we looked at, it predicts Christ's first coming, the establishment of uh, the temple of the Lord in that spiritual temple, and it shows Christ who will function as our high priest. This second prophecy here that closes out this book is the second coming of Christ, and it establishes when Christ will rule as king in his kingdom. And so we have kind of this flow here in these prophecies. What a great book, amen? Just a great book. Outside of these two prophecies that we just covered, just to tie a ribbon over this book, there is a call for God's people to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get distracted. Don't let the other things that are important spiritually go by the wayside. Keep the main thing the main thing. And also, we're not to invest in this temporal world. This world's not our home. The world's going to be burned up with fire. All of this is going to disappear, and so don't invest too much in this world. It's not going to last. And God really emphasizes His temple. Today, we would say the church. Live your life in a good church, serving in a good church, and your days will be blessed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for this little book, but it is mighty in its message. God, help us to be about the main thing. Thank you for these prophecies of Christ and just how it strengthens our love for your word and our trust in it. I pray this morning that you would speak to the people, open hearts, use the preaching of your word, 
anoint it with great power. Help every singer, help the choir, every giver, every aspect of this service, may it be pleasing in your sight. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.